Thank you very much, Miles. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for your time and attention today. Um, so, yes, my title is uh, Iris and the Christians. Uh, what did the British churches make of Murdoch, uh, 1954 to about 1983? So I just, uh, I just draw your, that, that closing date to your attention particularly because it's of some significance. Because what I'm going to do is to try and talk about a kind of Christian engagement with Murdoch that is quite different to what we see in the literature that's coming out of theology, theology department in the last 20 to 30 years. I think we see an earlier state in something which actually has its own historic his, uh, historical basis uh, going on. So, so the point has been well made uh, that Iris Murdoch's own religious upbringing and the circles in which she continued to move uh, gave her work an undertow of religious concern, sometimes rather faint, but persistent nonetheless. Uh, what one of her near contemporaries, the poet C.H. Sisson, uh, recognised in his own work as an obscure haunting. Uh, one need only reread the early novels of Kingsley Amis, or half a generation later, Michael Frame, or later again, the work of Amis Jr., uh, or Julian Barnes, for instance, to sense the difference in atmosphere. In several of the novels, Murdoch shows us priests, sometimes ridiculous, sometimes complacent, or so colourless as to be almost invisible. At other times, tortured, doubting, and malevolent even, as with uh, Carol Fisher in The Time of the Angels. Others, from Mr. Swan in An Unofficial Rose to Bernard Jacobi in The Philosopher's Pupil, are intrusive, if not indeed actually exploitative. We see nuns, uh, in the case of the bell, we see lay Christians trying to work their faith out. We see many church buildings, both inside and as markers in the London skyline in particular. The church itself, then, it, however, its heart is seldom shown to be anything, uh, anything other than ridiculous to a degree, uh, or at least irrelevant, uh, without purchase on mo any of the important issues in contemporary life. But despite this, uh, many of Murdoch's characters, who have ostensibly taken leave of all that stuff, still spend much of their time discussing what's left in the space where their faith used to be. However, what about the other side of the relationship? What, if anything, did the Christian churches, or I should say Christian readers, because I'm going to show there's a division between the two, what did they make in Britain of her? How did Christian readers in England receive Murdoch, both as philosopher and as novelist? Now, at one level, the question makes little sense, because there was no single voice of, of any of the churches from which one could expect the kind of, this kind of pronouncement. At the best of times, the churches were a symphony of voices, and at worst, a cacophony, even when dealing with those matters that directly touched on the regulation of the institution, its worship and its people, around which there were apparatuses of deliberation and decision-making representative bodies of various sorts. But on wider, more diffusive issues like politics, economics, at least some matters of ethics, as well as the arts, the historian needs to attend to a host of different voices in different places. Uh, some old, some young, uh, ordained or lay, in both the institutional centre or on the periphery, and indeed beyond the boundaries of the church itself. Understanding the reception of Murdoch in these debates is made more complex still by the fact of her dual life as professional philosopher and novelist. 
and she also worked in at least two areas of philosophy which edged very closely onto the discipline of theology, metaphysics firstly and ethics, to which I would also add aesthetics, although I don't have time to pursue it, the link very far today. I'm going to look at three areas, uh, metaphysics, ethics and finally the fiction, separately from each other, as I hope to show the degree of Christian engagement with Murdoch and the modes in which it occurred were quite different in each case. Now, it will become apparent that I should be saying nothing new about Murdoch's works themselves. Sorry about that. But I hope to shed some light on the atmosphere in which at least some of her readers would have encountered her work. And it seems to me, this seems to be, if not quite a, a gap, but at least an area in the literature that could do with more uh, treatment. So, in one of the episodes of the Admirable Iris Murdoch podcast, the participants fell to discussing the remark of the philosopher Alastair McIntyre that had things gone differently, Iris Murdoch could have been one of the great theologians. This I find hard to imagine. This was for certain intellectual reasons, which I'll come to in a minute, but there were also institutional factors in play. As is well known, Murdoch was accustomed to being one of the few or indeed the only woman in a particular intellectual context in which she found herself. And this would certainly have been the case in English theology until well into the 1980s. There was also a growing unease among some theologians at what seemed to be a loosening of the relationship between the theologian and the institution of the churches, a sense that some theologians had lost sight of the need to balance their intellectual integrity on one hand with a certain but unmistakable responsibility to the tradition on the other. This unease at the idea of the uncommitted theologian, a freelancer, as it were, a kind of loose cannon, was to be found in conservative figures such as Eric Maskell, uh, who we'll come to uh, shortly, uh, but also those on the more self-consciously radical wing of professional English theology. Paradoxically, it was easier to say radical things and be heard from within the church rather than from outside it, as was the case uh, with John Robinson, Bishop of Woolwich, uh, who I'll turn to in a while. To be a theologian implied certain institutional and methodological commitments, a sense of being in dialogue with a tradition, however loosely held in practice. And under these conditions, it's hard, I think, to imagine a train of events at the end of which Murdoch could have been recognised by her contemporaries as a theologian proper, rather than one might call uh, put place in the rather looser category of a very religious writer. <coughs> so, experts greater than I have stressed the process by which the platonic influence in Murdoch's philosophy, already clearly visible in the essays brought together in The Sovereignty of Good and The Bell before them, had by 1970 largely won out over the competition. Plato had been a durable interlocutor in Christian metaphysics, although in the period under discussion both he and Hegel were in a kind of eclipse. But even then, no less a figure than William Temple, wartime Archbishop of Canterbury, based his own philosophical work in the 20s and 30s squarely on Plato and Hegel. But what I think distinguished Christian Platonists like Temple was the fundamental acceptance of theism as a starting point. That whatever might be said about whatever it was that existed beyond the physical world, uh, it had some purposive and some personal element to it. 
As I, read, as I read the sovereignty of the good, however, the non-existence of a God with some form of personality or at least consciousness, separate from the physical world but in some way connected with it, with some form of agency able to deliberate and moved by some purpose, um, its absence is not so much argued as stated, I think. Murdoch seems not, or at least not in print that I know of, but I'm happy to be corrected, to have gauged very, very particularly with the traditional proofs or otherwise. Uh, with the, of the existence of God, and this is by no means a dead um, uh, subject in the philosophical literature in the 50s and 60s. Rather, as with Bruno, in chapter 11 of Bruno's dream, the idea of God seems simply to have died on her somehow. There is, however, nothing there. There is no supra-sensible reality but the good and the form of it that can be apprehended. Murdoch then starts on the outer, outer edge of the circle of tenable Christian reflection with the proposition that no God exists that might fit any historic definition. And then I think works outwards from there. It was perfectly possible to react, as Murdoch did, against a traditional Christian theology of atonement, sin and suffering, while still maintaining a basic theism. Christian philosophers of religion could and did debate to what degree and in which ways uh, God might be known or experienced, even to a point that God seemed to vanish from sight entirely. However, by and large, the conviction remained that God remained, even if hidden from view. And I want to argue that it's this fundamental difference in starting point, or perhaps end point, that meant that most Christians found it difficult to engage with Murdoch neat, as it were, tending to find the more diffuse thought of the fiction easier to engage with. As is well known, Murdoch engaged with the metaphysicals in Oxford, a small private group of Anglican philosophers of religion, her engagement being between, I think, 1948 and probably late 53. Peter Conradi notes that she left the group, having given at least one paper to its meetings, uh, describing herself as, quote, more a fellow traveller than a party member. Perhaps, as Conradi also notes, this parting of ways was down to the influence of Elias Kinetti. Perhaps it was, part, it was the influence of John Bailey, as Ian Wilson seems to suggest. But even at that point, specifically in relation to metaphysics, the likely divergence of their paths, I think, can be discerned. Murdoch would, I suspect, have found things to interest her in the work of Austin Farrer, <coughs> perhaps the most enduringly significant theologian of the group who gave the Bampton Lectures in Oxford shortly before Murdoch accepted the fellowship at St Anne's College. But at root, Farrer looked for his metaphysics not to Plato, but to Thomas Aquinas, and behind him, to Aristotle. The same can be said, but even more strongly, about Eric Maskell, E.L. Maskell, leading light and organiser of the metaphysicals, who was already engaged in a lifelong project to restate Christian doctrine from the foundation up in uh, Thomist terms. Maskell noted the metaphysicals in his memoir, but not Murdoch, although he certainly knew her well enough, having been the respondent to a paper she read to the Socratic Club in 1952. Over a long career, lasting deep into the 1980s, Maskell became something of a gatekeeper, uh, seemingly missing nothing published in English, and indeed in French, on the philosophy of religion. But he seems not to have noticed, or if he did see it, didn't engage with the sovereignty of the good, either when published as a whole in 1970, or the earlier appearances of its several chapters as they were <coughs> one by one. 
Murdoch is similarly absent from the footnotes of most of the literature in the period on the nature of God or whatever might be put in his place. Fundamentally, I think, little meeting of mind was likely to be possible with men such as the metaphysicals, and they were all men, um, whose business it was to clarify the nature of, of God that they were all these shows there by the mysterious action of faith. A measure of this mismatch is actually some of the reviews of the sovereignty of good. One reviewer was Colin Gunton, who was at the time a lecturer in the philosophy of religion at King's College London, and also an ordained minister in the United Reformed Church. Gunton appreciated Murdoch's demolition of the Kantian moral person as an autonomous choosing will. Her proposal of attention, a just and loving gaze, as a means of thinking was welcome to him and one with one to be what he thought should be discussed further. Quote, Yet, when it comes to the description of the reality to which the moral agent attends, he argued, the account is both less original and less satisfactory. From whence, he asked, came Murdoch's certainty that there was a supersensible reality there which was not God, but which, if attended to correctly, compelled certain acts and ruled out others. Quote again, one is irresistibly reminded of the broken-backed versions of the traditional theistic proofs that sometimes appear in modern natural theology. But perhaps that is all we're entitled to expect in this age of doubt. End quote. Keith Ward, an Anglican philosopher of religion then at the University of St Andrews, likewise welcomed elements of the book, most notably the emphasis on contemplation. But Murdoch, he thought, seemed to be asking that readers accepted both the existence of a, quote, single, perfect, transcendent, ineffable, necessarily real object of attention, end quote, and that it was not to be called God, nonetheless, and implied no purposive pattern to human life. Humankind, it seemed, had simultaneously to grasp, quotes, both the pointlessness of virtue and its supreme importance, close quotes. Although Ward didn't spell the point out, the, sure, the sentence was surely written and was to be read with a raised eyebrow. If we consider, too, some of the Anglican theologians of the period, with, with whom we know Murdoch engaged in the years after her estrangement from Donald McKinnon, it becomes apparent that she tended to engage most with those who were, in fact, furthest from the theological mainstream. Ian Ramsey, for instance, he was also a member of the Metaphysicals, although he joined it after Murdoch left. He was Nolloth Professor of the Philosophy of Christian Religion in, at Oxford from 1951 until 1966, uh, when he became Bishop of Durham. Although Ramsey's own personal theism was never quite in doubt, some of his work on the nature of religious language was suspected by critics of, of being compatible with an atheist position. Murdoch certainly engaged with Ramsey, specifically his 1957 book, Religious Language, but dismissed it in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals as mild tinkering. Much more to her taste was the brave and ferocious work of Don Cupid. Now, I don't intend to explore their sympathy in detail, but only to observe that Cupid's work was about as radical as it got in the early 1980s, and despite the BBC TV series The Sea of Faith, hard uh, to digest for many in the churches. The churches had enough to deal with uh, in books such as The Myth of God Incarnate in 1977, a most controversial book, which, whilst dismantling the idea of an incarnate Jesus Christ, nonetheless remained within a theist frame. It was bad enough, it seemed, that the traditional understanding of the person of Jesus was under attack. Few Christians at the time were likely to be able to think 
that what they needed to do was to accept the non-existence of God at all. But this, however, was precisely and avowedly what Cupid's Christian non-realism involved. So much for the metaphysics. I want to argue next that British Christians found rather more to work with in Murdoch's ethics. But there were still practical barriers that meant it was that it tended to be through the novels rather than the philosophy that it had most impact. Ian Ramsey, to whom I've already referred, edited in 1966 an anthology of recent papers on ethics from the, gathered from the specialist philosophical journals into a cheap study edition uh, from one of the main religious publishers, such that they might be more widely read. Uh, in it, he included Murdoch's 1956 dialogue with R.W. Hepburn that had first appeared in the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. This was the essay entitled Vision and Choice and Morality. But the degree to which the book failed to bridge the gap between academic and more, more church audiences was evident from some of the reviews. Uh, one reviewer spoke for many, I suspect, when he pointed out the absence of the traditional stuff of specifically Christian ethics in the volume, despite the title. Though rather complimentary of Murdoch's essay, in fact, he argued that, quotes, if a contemporary British philosopher were to review a book that showed such ignorance of philosophy as this does of Christian ethics, he would doubtless be rather nasty about it. Even in a popularising format, then, fundamentally, it seemed that the philosophers were not asking the questions to which the churches needed answers. And this reaction is intelligible if we attend for a moment to the particular pressures within Christian ethical debate in the 1950s and 60s. In the year before the publication of The Bell, there appeared the now, the now famous Wolfenden Report, which led eventually to the decriminalisation of homosexual practice in 1967, that the same year as the loosening on the law of abortion, at the time uh, as Murdoch was working on the nice and good. Capital punishment was all but abolished in the same year as in which the time of, an time of the angels appeared. The law of divorce was radically reformed in 1969, the year of Bruno's dream. And even this list doesn't exhaust the full extent of the emptying out of the, of the law, uh, of the British law, of its historic Christian moral content. So in this context, then, the church and its theologians were engaged in a double project of reconstruction. The Church of England certainly <coughs> had largely acquiesced in this separation of crime and sin uh, in recognition of the changed and still changing place that Christian faith could claim in national life. It had then to decide what role it was then going to play in public moral argument if it was still going to be an established church. It also had to work out what moral stance it should commend to its own faithful, which might need now to be different to that that was suggested by the law. The churches needed to decide which things were still sinful, even if they were no longer unlawful. And this effort largely took the form of, of attempts to formulate the right content of a Christian ethic in relation to this or that particular action or inaction. A church with its hands full of doing this was not, I think, well positioned to engage with the idea that no general stances on particular moral issues could in fact be formulated at all and so needed to be set aside. And since this, I think, is the full effect of Murdoch's ethics, it's unsurprising that it too was found difficult in, to engage with in its neat form. So the literature on Murdoch and moral theory is substantial and I don't intend to add to it, 
but I summarise her position like this. It was, is, effectively impossible to formulate moral principles in such a way that certain kinds of action were intrinsically virtuous and others intrinsically vicious. Um, context is all, such that a particular action may be virtuous under some circumstances and vicious in others. Murdoch, of course, however, stands some way from the kind of relativism that this might imply. As Julian Mazaros has put it, quote, the human being stands in a constraining relation with transcendent and objective good. The autonomous choosing will is in fact not really autonomous at all if it understands its own nature and that of the universe correctly. It is constrained by the standards that the existence of the good implies. And in order to discern that standard, to gain access to some kind of guide to right action in the moment, it's necessary really to see, to pay attention to the world and to the other. Such vision is only achieved by a kind of self-emptying, a renunciation of the self. And the person who most achieved such a sense of themselves was the person most likely to flourish. And it's here, I think, that the most fertile ground for Christian engagement in this period lay. Eric Maskell, again, for instance, highly unsympathetic both to much of the Oxford philosophy he had to live with in the 40s and 50s, and as, as I've said, a Thomist rather than a Platonist, could be found dealing with the idea of attention in ways Murdoch might well have appreciated. Maskell based the whole of his theology on the doctrine of God as being, on which all finite things depended for their continued existence. This is not a picture of a, of a, of a God who had once created the world and, set up and stepped aside from it. God's involvement with the world is, is, is continual and fundamental as far as Maskell sees it. Quote, one of the essential prerequisites, therefore, for an acceptance of Christian theism, he wrote in 1943, not long before coming to Oxford and meeting Murdoch, quote, is a contemplative and reverent attitude to finite beings. One of the problems with contemporary life, Maskell thought, was that people, quote, never really sit down and look at anything. When, however, they could be induced to stop and pay attention, as on the kind of retreats that Maskell helped lead, quote, natural objects seem to acquire a peculiar character of transparency and vitality, so that they appear only very thinly veiling the creative activity of God, end quote. Is not Murdoch's minute description of the physical world that Francis was talking about just earlier um, designed to reveal just such a transparency and vitality, the thinginess of things? The idea of a disinterested, self-emptying vision could then, I think, be framed in a theistic way just as well as it could in Murdoch's platonic conception of it. The particular object of Murdoch's vision is, of course, of the living beings and of the humans supremely. Uh, Misaurus's book shows us very clearly the points of contact between Murdoch and the American Lutheran theologian Paul Tillich, whose major work is systematic theology, Murdoch engaged with very closely in the late 1970s, citing it extensively in Metaphysics as a guide to morals. But there were others whose reach extended beyond the circle of theological specialists who would have encountered Tillich, in whom it was possible to find an ethic very close to Murdoch's even if its first cause, the first cause was theistic. It was possible to construct just such an ethic of relationships predicated not on the good, 
but on the Christian God, drawing on the example of Christ. One was the American Anglican Joseph F. Fletcher, most famously in his 1966 book, Situation Ethics, The New Morality. Fletcher stressed the primacy of love, the Christian notion of agape, in guiding action. And here we see again close parallels with Murdoch's stress on disinterested attention. But while Fletcher's work was controversial, it was as nothing compared to the storm created by another who drew on and publicised both Fletcher and Tillich, the Bishop of Woolwich, John Robinson, in his little book, Honest to God, published in 1963. Honest to God was a publishing, publishing sensation, selling 350,000 copies in the Anglophone world in its first few months. In his chapter entitled The New Morality, Robinson rejected the kind of casuistry that started with objective prohibitions of this or that action and that was then forced to overcome the difficulties of particular situations, turning and twisting, quoting Fletcher, in their own trap to serve love as well as law. The new casuistry of love, far from being an invitation to license, was for Robinson an even more taxing thing to be dealing with, making, quotes, the most searching demands both upon the depth and integrity of one's concern for the other, and upon the calculation of what is truly the most loving thing in this situation for every person involved. As Tillich had put it, as quoted by Robinson and also Fletcher, quote, the absoluteness of love is its power to go into the concrete situation to discover what is demanded by the predicament of the concrete to which it turns, end quote. And this, it seems to me, describes Murdoch's preoccupation perfectly. How far Murdoch engaged with Robinson is hard to judge, I, uh, although I'm happy to, 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 be, uh, to, be, to be pointed in the right direction. Though in 1963, she would have had to have been living in a cave to miss the controversy that the book raised. A young clergyman put in touch with her by Robinson himself did meet with her and discussed both Robinson's book and her novels at some point in 1963 or early 64. <coughs> Mentioned briefly in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, Honest to God is, however, dismissed, along with Ian Ramsey, as more of the same mild tinkering. Though I don't intend to deal with it here, I actually read The Unnamed Bishop in the Time of the Angels as in part based on Robinson, who were invited to see as a dabbler in matters the full implications of which he won't face, in contrast to Carol Fisher, who sees the abyss uh, very clearly. The first draft of the novel is written in the spring and summer of 1965 when the reverberations from Honest to God were far from having subsided. But be that as it may, I do maintain that there were some within the Church of England, at least, strains of ethical thinking that in their practical implications were quite close indeed to Murdoch's, while their metaphysical foundations are quite different. However, in the 1960s, such a radical recasting of Christian ethics was far from the norm. Consider for a second the reaction of Alistair McIntyre, a US-based British philosopher, uh, to both Robinson and later to Murdoch. When McIntyre was still in the UK in the 1960s at the University of Essex, he was an early and incisive critic of Honest to God, arguing that although the church couldn't hope to reiterate traditional stances on this or that moral issue any longer. Robinson's solution was no solution at all, in fact. Quote, Dr. Robinson's morality is a morality of intention, a morality of intention divorced from the prescription of particular types of action, 
are notoriously difficult to formulate in a way that gives them any content. If I am to say what it is to act from love rather than from any other motive in my intentions, I must be able to specify some content which love has in specific situations. Just to say, we simply ask you to do what is, whatever is compatible with love was equally as arbitrary, as far as McIntyre was concerned, as reasserting a prohibition of suicide or any, or any of the other things that had just been uh, emptied from the law. It, quote, in face of actual problems, we have no directive from the word love. And so it's in this light that we then need to read McIntyre's later review of Elizabeth Dipple's book on uh, Iris Murdoch's uh, Iris Murdoch's work, work of the Spirit, published in 1982. McIntyre, who by that time was in the US, soon to become a Roman Catholic, uh, summed up Murdoch's later novels like this. All goodness being referred to the form of the good seems to entail that there is no such thing as a good way of life or a good form of human community. Social circumstances are not themselves except accidentally part of the matter of morality which is a purely individual enterprise, and one that just because what is good is good, quote, for nothing, leads nowhere. The novels quite inadvertently make a case for the pointlessness of morality, close quote. The problem for McIntyre was of looking to the form of the good as a basis for moral behavior was that it was, quote, practically empty. Lacking any specific content, it is in fact a nothing, a ghost of a something. It's possible then that McIntyre spoke for at least some Christian readers in concluding that, admiring these novels as I do, I also distrust them. End quote. The difficulty in locating the voice of the churches in relation to the novel is slightly greater still. In the 1950s, the churches knew, or at least they thought they knew, what to do with music. Figures such as Walter Hussey, Dean of the Cathedral here in Chichester, pointed the way uh, towards a renewed use of the visual arts in the churches as well. There had been a sustained effort towards a revival of religious drama, of which T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral is only the most well-known example. At the time Murdoch is writing under the net, uh, new churches were being built, bombed ones restored, and with that building came lively debate about what sacred architecture should now look like uh, in the 50s and 60s. The novel, however, was a case apart. It could only ever be the private concern of Christians which novels they read, and in some cases, which novels they wrote. In 1943, Dorothy L. Sayers was offered but refused an honorary degree uh, from the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple lest being so identified with the church made it harder for her to produce what she described as secular, frivolous or unbecoming work, full of the language of the rude soldiery or descriptive, excuse me, of the less respectable passions. I shouldn't like your first woman DD to create scandal or give re reviewers cause to blaspheme, end quote. And so the engagement of the churches with the novel has no institutionalized expression, but tends to present itself in episodes most often in relation to, by agitation by who are those who are essential, essentially private citizens against or enthusiasms for particular novels into which individual Christians find themselves being drawn from time to time. Such a case for this was Lady Chatterley, which I shall come to shortly. Earlier on, I, I 
uh, trying to set aside the question of aesthetics in particular in Murdoch because it's too com I have, don't have time to deal with the properties today. But I, I will just say this, that in general, most English theologians were not dealing with the subject of the kind of depth that one tends to in season the, the fire and the sun, although that book did find some readers. But Murdoch was capable of speaking about the creative process in ways that would have chimed uh, with those within the churches concerned uh, with this renegotiation uh, with the arts. One of the aspects of the, ta of the achievement of Walter Hussey was his ability to find a connection with artists and composers who they, who they would not have owned the Christian faith as such, could express their understanding of the creative process in terms that could be Christianised. The sculptor Henry Moore, for instance, with whom Hussey was in contact for 40 years, put it like this, quote, all art is religious in a sense that no artist would work unless he believed that there was something in life worth glorifying, end quote. Benjamin Britten, a nearer in age to Murdoch, has been described by his most recent biographer as a deist in a theist world. In 1943, Britten told Hussey over tea in the vicarage at Northampton, where he was then priest, that, quote, every real artist must really have some work in him to do for the church. He may not be a regular churchgoer, but he must have a religion, end quote. And it was only a short step from here to the understanding that was very common among Catholic Christians at this time, that the creative impulse in humans was a response to the imago dei, the image of God, the imprint of God and nature in his creature. To create was to imitate the creator. Expressed more strongly, this human effort wasn't just broadcast, as it were, into a void, but was in response to an active prompting by something that is variously described either as God or as grace. A murder was to be found expressing herself in terms that would have resonated with this, at least. In 1969, she took part in a BBC discussion programme alongside Martin Jarrett Kerr, an Anglican monk from the community of Murfield in Yorkshire, and one of the most uh, significant Anglican writers on literature in the post-war period. Well, I'm not myself a believer, said Murdoch, but I think I do recognise the existence of something which one might call the operation of grace, meaning this very unexpected thing that arrives. I think any artist knows about grace, that one sits blankly for a long time, and then something happens all at once, as if one is being given something. End quote. There was something analogous here with the ways in which one might attain virtue, she thought, and the, the subject of the whole programme was, was God, evil and morality. Quote again, I think even a non-believer can make some sense out of this idea, that if one attempts to direct one's attention in a certain way, or to wait in a certain kind of way, that one might be in some sense helped. At any rate, I keep on asking myself the question whether this is an illusion or not, but I don't think it is, or not perhaps altogether an illusion. End quote. There was then a point at which Murdoch's aesthetics were within touching distance of a fairly commonly held Christian position. And so to the novels, of which there were no shortage of Christian reading. For various reasons, most, although not quite all, of the most well-documented examples tend to be Anglican. Reginald Askew, who was later to write illuminatingly in the, in the Irish Murdoch newsletter on novels, invited her to speak to his students at the Theological College at Wells in the early 60s, having read certainly An Unofficial Rose and probably more besides. 
after first meeting her as an undergraduate in Cambridge. The theologian Dennis Nynam, who Murdoch had known as one of the metaphysicals in Oxford, cited the case of Cato Forbes in his discussion of the person of Jesus in the, his epilogue to the controversial myth of God incarnate in the mid-70s. Slightly younger was Don Cupid himself, who was in his early 20s when the novel started to appear, and recalled hurrying out and buying each new one as it came out. Martin Coombs, the young clergyman whom John Robinson sent to Murdoch in 1963, had chosen existentialism as a study topic as part of his continuing training, which eventually he boiled down to one of the novels, which unfortunately isn't named, we can probably guess. A generation younger, Rowan Williams, later Archbishop of Canterbury, still writing on Murdoch today, first encountered the novels in the early 1970s, reading a paper about them to his fellow graduate students at Wadham College. And of the same generation was Paul Fiddis, a Baptist theologian and a Murdoch scholar, who began reading the novels about the same time as did Williams, beginning with A Sacred and Profane Love Machine soon after its publication in 1974. Thanks once again to the podcast for that nugget of information. What follows represents part of what is a, a larger project, very much in progress, on the various different modes of response to the novel in which British Christians operate in this period. And I see these as five, broadly speaking. Edification, firstly. Secondly, a kind of entertainment. Thirdly, a mode of defence. Fourth, a kind of co-option. And finally, a form of reconstruction. Two of these, the first two, edification and entertainment, don't need to delay us for long today. Whatever Murdoch novels were, they were no way, in no way portrayals of clearly Christian characters encountering the world and reaching a religiously satisfying and orthodox accommodation with it. There were other novelists who could provide that for the Christian reader who wanted to be directly nourished and encouraged in their faith. Neither was Murdoch providing a kind of entertainment of the kind that we see in Barbara Pym. Although I'm a great fan of Barbara Pym, her novels contain only, a, only the gentlest picking at the Christian fabric from which they're woven. The most well-established Christian mode of reading fiction at this time is my third one, that is, of a kind of defence. The attempt to counter aspects of the contemporary novel uh, as a possible threat to faith or, more usually, public morality. Christians had, for a very long time, tended to be wary of the arts in general, or at least some did. A wariness that is often comprehensively misunderstood by being labelled puritanical. The Puritans of the 17th century were not indifferent to the arts by any means, but only too aware, as they saw it, of the unparalleled power, God-given power, that, they, that the arts had to move people. Uh, as such, the arts needed to be handled very carefully and used for very specific purposes as they saw it. And it's, it's the echo of this concern that we see in the obscenity trial of D.H. Lawrence's The Rainbow in 1915, we see it again in uh, the suppression of Lady Chatterley's lover until the early 1960s. It's still there in the reaction of A.N. Wilson's church-going parents to the portrayal of homosexuality in The Bell, published nearly a decade before its decriminalisation. And as I've noted, that act, the Sexual Offences Act, is only one part of the liberalisation of the law as it applies to matters of sexuality. Those debates provoke no little concern amongst Christian commentators and about particularly about the ways in which uh, sexuality is portrayed in the novel of the 50s and 60s, and into these debates that Murdoch gets wrapped up from time to time. 
Bernard Bogonzi, poet and critic, teaching at Warwick, uh, was, uh, was teaching at Warwick when invited to address the Catholic Marriage Advisory Council in 1971 on the subject of sex and modern fiction. Following Lawrence, he thought, the modern novel had adopted a mode of dealing with sex as a metaphor for human contact itself. In a culture in which, quote, the traditional forms of human contact have been made meaningless and speech itself has become trivial and empty. For Bergonzi, then, sex had been made both rather portentous and increasingly psychologically implausible, as he saw it. Quotes, two people who scarcely know each other will suddenly engage in sexual intercourse. Lifelong heterosexuals will suddenly and inexplicably act in a homosexual way or vice versa. And the taboo against incest will be readily broken. The novels of Iris Murdoch are full of this kind of activity, end quote. In the same year, the Cambridge literary critic David Holbrook, writing in the Catholic periodical Blackfriars, criticised in a similar way the kind of sexual enlightenment that had, quote, encouraged sexual activity without responsibility under the coercion of an enlightened dogma and tolerance. We both commit violence upon ourselves and withdraw our feelings, a syndrome evident from the novels of Iris Murdoch, who seems, however, to endorse it and seek to persuade us that it doesn't matter. Now, it's clear that at a greater distance, this is a misreading of Murdoch's intention in the adulterous merry-go-round of a severed head or the flight flight from the Enchanter. But it is explicable in this particular mode of Christian reading of fiction. Neither Bergondi nor Holbrook had much in common with a kind of blunt polemic of Malcolm Muggeridge or Mary Whitehouse at the same time. But they both spoke to a kind of Christian unease, both about society and its reflection in the novel. Murdoch, then, was from time to time caught up in a kind of critique which read such fiction as a danger to morality in what was nominally still a Christian country. As I said, critics are often guilty of failing to distinguish between the portrayal of vice and evil by a novelist and the novelist's approval of it. The fourth mode of reading which I want to talk about is subtly different, which I think of as a kind of co-option by apparently secular work for Christian purposes. This goes back now to the aesthetic point I was talking about before. I noticed, before, noted that Walter Hussey shared with Henry Moore and Benjamin Britten a sense in which all creator activity was in some sense religious, even if the artists themselves professed no faith in particular. Great art, leaving aside the definition of it, great art of whichever kind and whatever its subject uh, would, indeed must, reveal something of religious significance if it was read correctly. And given this, it's possible for Christian critics to take the novel and to dig between its portrayals of sin and vice to find ethical and religious gold underneath. This was relatively easy to do when reading Dostoevsky or Dickens. But the testimony of John Robinson in defence of Lady Chatterley was along just these lines, although there were Christians who who, who, who could scarcely believe that you could find a bishop defending such a dirty book. Martin Jarrett Kerr, who I mentioned before in conversation with Murdoch, and who also testified in defence of Chatterley, had written at length at Lawrence in the early 50s. But what about the post-war generation of English novelists in which we must place Murdoch? Were critics like Holbrook and Bergonzi right to think that they were too far gone for anything to be recovered from them? I want to take two studies from both in the late 60s, 
both of which were attempts at just this kind of recovery. Both were by Christians teaching in UK universities, and both were pitched at and priced for the general reader. Ruth Etchells was lecturer in English at Durham University when she published what was subtitled A Christian Study of Contemporary English Writing in 1969. And Etchells included a close reading of an unofficial rose in a chapter on interpersonal relationships and, and the possession, self-possession and self-emptying of the self in relation to others. The other as a thing to be used rather than met on his or her, her own terms. In the novel, Miranda is gripped by a possessive, jealous agony for Felix, which he cannot, which he cannot see, which blindness ends up with a doll transfixed by a dagger. But Miranda is too young to understand these things, Felix thinks. Other people are what matter about life, and that's the best reason why one just can't contract out of it. We are members one of another, as the service says. An alert reader like Etchells and an alert Anglican reader like Etchells couldn't miss the reference there to the passage in the Book of Common Prayer. And it was Murdoch's juxtaposition of Miranda's possessiveness with an ideal of self-giving love that Etchells can take and make use of as a Christian ethicist and commentator. Even though then, in an unofficial rose, the reading of the official religious representative, the clergyman Mr Swan, is largely unsympathetic, there was nonetheless material there, ethical material for Christians to get hold of and use. The late 60s was in many ways a time in which the mood among British churches darkened, as it became clear that many of the vital numbers to which, uh, which attention was paid, as to say church attendance, baptisms, vocations to ordain ministry, had all turned downwards and rapidly. So I don't have time to go into this general trend, except to observe that at least some critics felt the force of this crisis and understood that it added a difficulty in, uh, the, in a rather complacent reading of contemporary fiction as if the English were really still Christians at heart, even if they seemed to have forgotten to go to church for a while. And the second of the two studies I want to look at briefly was by Valerie Pitt, a lecturer in Woolwich Polytechnic in South London. This is the geographical heart of the kind of radical theology associated with John Robinson. Pitt had established herself uh, a, a reputation as one of those calling on the Church of England to recognise the depth of the crisis it faced and to act radically in response. The Church has a habit, she wrote in 1966, like an old woman after a death, of clearing up the oddments of property and laying claim to any bits and bobs of moral insight that may be lying around. But this is the trouble. In this making use of literature, none of the theological critics will open his mind and enter into a willing suspension both of belief and unbelief and really receive the writer's vision." End quote. A new kind of humility then was going to be required from the churches if they were going to make sense of this new cultural environment and the artistic, uh, its artistic output. And there was one area in particular in which the preoccupation of the contemporary novel met with theology. The business of fiction was, quote, to explore, to find the depths and limits of the guilt and love of our involvement with each other, end quote. As a matter of fact, Pitt found much that was unsatisfactory in Murdoch's novels to that point, which he called a kind of Mandarin Gothic. But there was a meeting place between literature and theology in this understanding that love was important if understood in Murdoch's sense as, quote, 
the recognition of the otherness of other people, a kind of acknowledgement of a self, not oneself, who is not reducible to one's own needs and uses. Pitt's reading, then, was, one, was like Ruthetchel's, one of co-option, or a kind of translation of Murdoch's themes into a Christian frame, but a less confident one. To conclude, if I may, a word on the period which I have tried to cover today, which is very specific, the nearly, that is to say, the nearly three decades from under the net in 1954 until around about the time of the philosopher's pupil, 1983. Now the starting point I hope is self-explanatory, but the later, later one may not be so. If one looks at the contents of the main theological journals, one can clearly observe a significant growth in attention paid to Murdoch, both as a novelist and philosopher, from somewhere in the mid-80s, the late 80s onwards. Now why this is exactly is a subject for another paper, but it is, I suspect, connected with a number of things. One of them is a broader growth in the interest in the connections between literature and theology in general. The founding of the journal Literature, Literature and Theology in 1987 is a straw in this particular wind. There were also wider intellectual forces in play. The impetus to read the Bible as a literary text had, as the century had progressed, the 20th century had progressed, metamorphosed from being merely one additional tool for interpreting the Bible into, for some, the only credible way to, left to read it, when radical scepticism about the Bible as history had seemed to render it unusable. And the movement that was dubbed narrative theology, which emerged in the late 70s and early 80s, was one response, stressing the primacy of the storytelling aspect of theology over the systematic deduction of propositions of fact. In the case of the novel itself, Christ Christian writers and critics faced what an almost complete evacuation of conventional religious symbolism in serious contemporary fiction by the mid to late 80s, I would argue, or at least uh, treatments of Christian themes that, that engage uh, the churches themselves and religious characters. And so Christian critics increasingly began to see the need for a new kind of bridge building over a gulf that had opened up, the depth and width of which earlier critics couldn't have imagined in the late 60s, say in the early 70s, although Valerie Pitt, I think, had seen which way the wind was starting to blow. Contemporary Christian writers, faced with, in Flannery O'Connor's phrase, a coin of the realm with a face worn off it, that is to say, a system of metaphor and symbol that had become unintelligible, needed to make a more intentional effort to revalorise the language, to imprint the coin again. And here I see Peter Hawkins' study of the language of grace in 1983 as a landmark work. Murdoch was, for Hawkins, a writer, quote, who uses the devalued words of grace, but may end up not only revaluing them, but also being used by them, uh, that is, may end up writing fiction susceptible to a sacred as well as a secular reading. And so it's by this point, I think, that Christian critics have moved into the fifth mode of reading that I identify, a kind of reconstruction almost from nothing, shorn of the kind of self-confidence visible in the readings of the earlier period. However, in the period of this paper, Christian readers did certainly read the fiction of the contemporaries, but responded to Murdoch, Murdoch's work, work and those of others in different, older, and more comfortable ways. Thank you.